0: Even now, we offer to our minds and our hearts, and I pray that you would open them, open our minds. Uh, whatever blinders we may have on there, I pray you would take them off. Whatever resistance we may have in the context of our own souls, I pray that you would overcome it. Uh, Father, that your word may have its perfect work in us. We rely uh, desperately, Father, upon the promise that says that your word would have its perfect work in us. We rely upon it, we trust that promise of yours so even now fulfill it we pray in these moments in Jesus name amen you may be seated turn please to Ezekiel and chapter 47 Ezekiel chapter 47 please chapter 47. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of God. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out of the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. And then he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. And again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. And again he measured a thousand, and it was was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in it, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And whenever the river goes... Every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there. The waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Enenglem. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They're to be left for salt on the banks of both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now what does this mean? Ezekiel is seeing a vision. Now visions unlike for us, visions were common for Ezekiel. You remember this whole prophecy opened up with Ezekiel seeing a vision he saw a wheel turning moving in all kinds of directions with all kinds of eyes and what Ezekiel saw in that vision was God now when we meet God he won't look like a wheel but that was a vision was a picture and the meaning of that picture was that God was present and and Ezekiel knew that and he fell down on his face before the Lord and he was humbled and then some time later Ezekiel was taken in a vision to see the temple now Ezekiel, remember, when all this was happening, was in exile. He wasn't in Jerusalem, but he was in exile with with the Israelites in Babylon. And so we don't know where exactly he was locationally when he saw this vision of the temple, but we know he was in the Spirit, and he he saw this vision of the temple in Jerusalem, and and he saw within and saw the sin that was going on in there, that the priests were not honoring God. They were in the very presence of God, but not honoring God. Do you remember that then he saw the most devastating thing a person could, I suspect, ever see? And that is, he saw God leave this temple from the, by the east gate. And God left his own dwelling place. And Ezekiel cried out to him. He says, is there any hope for us? Can we be saved? Is there any amongst us who's actually ever going to be saved? And that's when God turned to Ezekiel and, and said, tell the people this, that, that a day will come when I will restore them. To Jerusalem and I will then also give them a new heart and a new spirit and I will put my spirit within them and cause them to walk in my ways." And that was just a, a brief fresh word in the midst of this judgment prophecy and so you know what happens after that after God had left the temple then the Babylonians came in and destroyed it and yet still there was this word hanging that there would be a restoration and certainly there would be because you see God had made a promise to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him, through his seed. And so the the nation still needed to remain. There needed to be still some in Israel. And so God said, yes, of course, I'll restore you. But they needed more than a geographical and architectural restoration. That is, they needed more than just to go back to Jerusalem proper and rebuild the temple. Because you see, previously they were in Jerusalem and they had the temple. But still they ignored God. They sinned against him. And what they really needed was an inner work in them, a new heart and a new spirit. And God had promised that. And so as we move through this prophecy and we get to Ezekiel chapter 36, we find there this prophetic word, this restoration being reiterated, not just simply locational, geographical and all of that, but this heart work where God comes and says, I will take out their heart of stone and I will put in a heart of flesh that's soft, that's beating, that's alive and I will put a new spirit within them and I will put my spirit within them and I will cause them to walk in my ways. And then Ezekiel saw that great picture of all these bones laying on the field. And he says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And I think Ezekiel probably said, no, no, but since you ask, yes. And God said, yes, speak to the bones. And speak to the wind, the Spirit to come and blow upon them. And those bones left. And if Ezekiel would turn to God and said, I don't believe you about this new heart and new spirit. He said, what did I just show you? Those bones will live and then if you ask the question is this, is this long term or is this just going to be another short term deal God you know, will we eventually be destroyed in chapters 38 and 39 he, he tells the scene of this great final last battle where Gog comes and, 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 and gathers all the nations of the world to come against the people of God and God delivers them God fights for them and destroys the nations and saves his people in fact we read of that even as we read in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, this last great battle. Then chapter 40, we open that, and there was another vision. Ezekiel sees this beautiful, perfectly proportioned temple. And there it is, and this angel comes and measures it piece by piece. And then the great entryways through the gateways into the outer court, then the inner court, and then this altar of sacrifice, which then led this through this threshold into the holy place, and then the most holy place. And you'd get the impression that God would say then to Ezekiel, okay, Ezekiel, now go tell the people when they go back to Jerusalem that this is what I want them to build. But he doesn't say that. He just says, go and tell them what you've seen. Because you see, this is a vision, it's a picture It's a picture that Ezekiel gets that has meaning. And so the question is, what did this mean for them? And and God gives them a hand. He says, when they hear this, when you declare it to them, what will happen is that they will be humbled and they will be ashamed of their deeds, their sins, and they will follow me. That's what's going to happen when you show them this. And if I was Ezekiel, I would say, "Well, well, well, how? How is this really going to lead to that? How is seeing this picture... Well, you know god was speaking to them in a language they could understand because he knew they knew what the temple he knew what the temple meant to them it would be the very presence of god and ezekiel would be saying as he as he laid out this whole temple scene if you want to come to god if you want to be in his presence again for you see he saw god coming in the east gate into this temple and he says, if you want to be with God in this temple again, do you know what you're going to have to do? You know what that means? You're going to be outside and need to come in. And so, what you're going to do is need to abandon everything on the outside. You're going to need to stop trusting everything on the outside. And you're going to need to come in through this gate. And as you enter in through this gate, you're going to meet a priest because you can't stand before God on your own. It requires someone that God has chosen. And God is cleansed. And that one needs to represent you. And all of a sudden, you'd be humbled by that. You mean, I can't stand in the presence of God, but no. One must stand for you. And you would be humbled by that. Well, why? Because of your own sin. You can't enter the presence of God. Someone must go there on your behalf. And then that priest would also say, I need to take before God a sacrifice because for you to come into his presence, for any of us to come into his presence, because we've sinned, you see. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, someone must die. And if it isn't you, then then God will accept a sacrifice. So bring a sacrifice, bring an animal, and, and we'll sacrifice that animal and that animal will die. It will be your substitute. And then once a year, we remember, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of these, this goat on his hand and he would sprinkle it on this seat of mercy so that people could be cleansed. That's humbling. And God would say, that's the way to approach me. And they would see that and be humbled, be ashamed, and follow God. Now the great thing about that, of course, is we saw that all that was fulfilled in Jesus' Because Jesus identified with the temple. You remember that day? This is just review, just for those of you who weren't listening last week. It's in lieu of the quiz. Jesus identified with the temple when he said, "Destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. And the scripture says this when he was speaking about his body. Because you see, when Jesus was standing beside the temple, he was really redundant. They both had the same meaning except Jesus fulfilled all that was spoken of in the temple. Because Jesus is our high priest. He represents us before the Father. Jesus is our sacrifice. He takes it into the throne of grace. And thus, in Jesus, everything in the temple is fulfilled. And thus, we now say, if you want to come to God, you leave everything behind and you come to Christ, you come to Him. And He takes from there. He represents you before His Father. He makes the sacrifice which He did on the cross. And now you're cleansed, forgiven to live in the presence of God. Okay. Now Ezekiel gets deeper into this vision about this temple. And what he sees is this. He looks into the the sanctuary part, the temple part, Uh, If this, what we call the sanctionasium, if if this were kind of the outer court of the temple and then the inner court of the temple, there would be uh, uh, an altar of sacrifice. Right over there where where Mark and Elaine, sorry, Elaine Wade are, right about there. Don't look at them, but right there. Right right about there, let's say. This altar of sacrifice. And then as we go west, there would be a threshold. Of course, it's all much bigger than this, but a threshold. And then the holy place and the most holy place. Well, what Ezekiel saw was a trickle of water coming coming out from the, the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. Just a trickle of water. And what was amazing about this this trickle of water was that it began to flow sort of southeast. And, and, and it kind of went out the, the, the outer courts. And So Ezekiel had to run to, to see it. And, and, and so he had to run out the north gate and run all the way around because when God had come in the east gate, he shut the east gate. And even though this is a vision, you still have to play by the rules. And so he went out all the way around uh, and, and he saw, and as this trickle of water left the outer court, uh, this angel began to measure it. and He measured about 1,500 feet down, and it was about ankle deep. And then he measured another 1,500 feet or so down, and they walked in, and it was, it was knee-deep, and then, and then it became waist-deep. And then another 1,500 yards after that, he, he couldn't manage it. He had to get out because it was just, it was just over his head. The best he could do was, was swim in it. And that's quite an interesting trickle. Because usually when something starts as a trickle, it sort of trickles out after a while. But this didn't. And nothing else seemed to be added to it. It just seemed to get broader and deeper and broader and deeper as it went through. Now that's what Ezekiel saw. And not only that, but in this river was fish. There was just fish. And, and anybody could catch fish and it would feed everybody. And, and along both sides of this river were these tremendous fruit trees. And these fruit trees were such that they bore fruit every month and they never withered, but every month they were filled with fruit to feed everybody. And if and you took one of those leaves, it would heal you. Now the question is, when Ezekiel went back and reported this to the people, what do you think they said? Do you think they said cool, let's go find this trickle. (laughs) Because if we can find this trickle and find it to the other end, we'll be in really good shape. Or were they thinking, what's God saying? Well, it was a vision. It was a picture. They understood these kinds of things. I don't think they were saying, hey, in our future's a big river, as much as they were saying, in our future is what this means. Because, you see, rivers meant a lot to this people. For instance, in Psalm chapter 46, Psalm 46, great psalm of comfort. It begins, you know this psalm, I suspect, many of you, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble, so forth and so on, therefore we will not fear. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her; she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning, uh, when morning dawns. In other words, they knew about this river because Scripture had spoken about rivers like this that come from God, and said, "This is the very presence of God. This is where God lives. This is the very life of God flowing." out from the sanctuary of God. This is the the, the holy habitation of the Lord, and, 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 and He lives in the midst of this, and she won't be moved. In Isaiah, in chapter 12, verse 3, for instance, Isaiah the prophet, again, in a verse, at least, that's fairly well known, says this. He speaks to the people of this day, and he says, "...with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation." And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known the deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously, let this be known in all the earth, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. He says, where this water is that you draw out of this well for salvation... Jeremiah speaks of it, and you don't need to turn to this one, but Jeremiah speaks of it simply as the fountain of life. And in Zechariah chapter 13, that prophet writes, on that day, now in the Old Testament when you read that day, it's it's that day, not that day, but it's that great day of the Lord, on that day, the day when it all comes together, on that day. There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David, that the and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So he's saying, listen, there's a river that comes out of the very sanctuary of God, and this river is life. It streams with life. Everything it touches brings life. It heals. That's the very nature of it. Why? Because it's the very presence of God. And it brings cleansing, and it brings forgiveness. And so you see, I think when the people in Ezekiel's day heard this, they went, wow. What this is really saying to us is that a day is coming when God will dwell in our midst. And in order to, to come to him, we, we, we need to come to him and, and, and one will represent us because we can't come on our own. And that very one will bring sacrifice for us because of our sins. And as that sacrifice comes in the very presence of God and he receives it and accepts us and we live in him, what comes from that then is life, great life. And do you remember there was a time in the life of Jesus when uh, he was walking and moving quite quickly and uh, he had opportunity to walk through Samaria. Now, uh, Samaria was not a place where Jews typically walked. They would normally go around that particular area because because there was a great feud between the Samaritans and the Jews. They didn't like each other. It was a family feud, so it was horrible. And yet Jesus chose to go through it, sat down, sent his disciples off for lunch, and he was there in the middle of the day, and a woman was there, and there was a well. And this woman didn't have the best of reputations, which was probably why she was there in the middle of the day, so she wouldn't have to encounter anyone else, but as most of us with bad reputations, we have a tendency to encounter Jesus. And there he was. And he asked her if she would get him a drink out of the well. And she was flabbergasted that a Jew would ask a Samaritan anything, let alone help. And you remember Jesus' response. Verse 10 of John 4, for those keeping score at home. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Oh, what an interesting thing for Jesus to say, because see, Jesus is already identified with the temple. He's already said that his body is the temple. And we already know that what Ezekiel saw was living water coming out of the temple, and Jesus said, you want to get to that living water, you come to me interesting. And then he went on to say, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then in John chapter 6, Jesus had just fed thousands of people just a little bit of food and he was speaking of himself, John chapter 6 and verse 35 and Jesus, we read, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus has this water thing going. He says, listen, if, if you believe in me, if you trust in me, you'll never thirst. That is to say, leave everything else behind. And if you want to come into a place where the living water is flowing, leave everything else behind and come to me, and I'll be your representative. And I'll be your substitute. And I'll come into the presence of God on your behalf. And what will come out of that is life, living water. Now, as I mentioned during the offering time, there's a great feast that took place in the seventh month for the Israelites. It was called the Feast of Booths. Not the Feast of Booze. Uh, It's a fraternity thing. The Feast of Booths. And in this feast, it was a celebration of great joy. Celebration of great joy wherein, as I said a little while ago, they would make out of mud and and, uh, branches these little booths to live in. And they would think about how God delivered them and cared for them and kept them during this time when they went through the wilderness. The miraculous water, the miraculous bread, the miraculous meat, everything. And they would remember that. And it was a great time of joy. Not only that, as I said, it was an in-gathering time where they would remember, they would see the the, the harvest that was before them and they would thank God for that. He not only used to care for us, but He still cares for us. And then they had an eye towards the future. When a day would come when all would be well and all would be right. And so it was a great time of celebration. Almost 200 sacrifices during this week. It was a a seven-day sacrificial time. But you mustn't think of it as morbid. You must realize the great joy that took place. And then at the end of that seven-day period, an eighth day was on the end. It wasn't a day where there was sacrifice, but rather it was a day of assembly when the people would come together. Now this was one of those feasts that was sort of a mandatory feast. And so the men of Israel were expected to go to Jerusalem. It was like the Passover and Pentecost. It was one of those feasts where where there was a great influx of people into Jerusalem. And so Jesus and the disciples were there uh, in Jerusalem, but he didn't want to go because he had heard that there was a plot in his life and using sort of the normal good sense means of grace that God gives us. He says, my time hasn't come, so I'm not going to go up right now, but he sent the boys. And they went up to the feast. About midweek, Jesus arrived. Now you have to visualize, you have to see this great feast. Every day throughout that seventh-eighth period in the morning as the morning sacrifice was about to be prepared and about to be offered, there were two processions that left the temple area. One left the temple area uh, to go to the Kindred Valley uh, to to get palm branches and myrtle branches and they'd tie them all together. And one procession went to the Pool of Siloam. Now, in each of these processions, there was a priest, and there were musicians, and there were dancers, and there were singers, and they just had a wonderful time processing out. And the, the priest that went to the Pool of Siloam would carry this big golden pitcher, and he would go to the pool and he would fill it up with water, with all this noise and the trumpets blaring. And the folks who went and got the the palm branches and so forth and tied them all together would come around where the sacrifice was being prepared. And as they would do that, they would take these palm branches and they would kind of strike the sacrifice on the side as it was moving up to the altar to be sacrificed with this great procession and great noise. Not only that, then once they got the water, they turned around and again, they danced their way back and the trumpet would sound. And, and, And right at the time when the palm branch procession and the water procession met at the altar was the time for the sacrifice to take place. And it was at that moment that the uh, priest with the water would begin to pour it out. Because at the base of the altar were two bowls with little holes in them that would lead to the base of the altar. And in one bowl they would pour wine. And in one bowl they would pour this water. And when it was all poured out, the priest would raise his fist and the people would begin to sing. They begin to sing Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, 118, bits and pieces of that. In fact, when they got to Psalm 118, they would, they would pause at various, at various verses and, and to sort of become modern praise chorus singers and sing them again and again and again. Uh, so in Psalm 118, for instance, they stopped at verse 1 that says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. They'd stop at verse 25 that says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. But oh Lord, we pray, give us success. So they were they were they were thinking about their own salvation in the midst of this. And then they would stop at verse 29, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Because in their mind was the river of life when they saw this water. In their mind was the well of salvation when they saw this water. And every day, day after day, for seven straight days this water was poured out. And it was great fun. Then on the eighth day, there was no water. People gathered together. And it was on that day that Jesus stood up. Notice John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, he didn't say it softly. He didn't say it gently. He cried it out. He screamed it. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Again, the water thing. Here, right in the temple, where day after day the water had been poured out, Jesus said, think about that water. That's me. You want your thirst quenched? Come to me. Notice that little proviso, if anyone thirsts. It makes a great deal of sense. Why would you get a drink of water if you're not thirsty? But the question is, what's it mean to be thirsty? What's it really mean to thirst? To thirst after what only Jesus can satisfy. To thirst after only what that water river of life can give. What's it mean to really thirst? Remember, that guy we call the prodigal son an interesting life because he went from dissatisfaction to satisfaction to dissatisfaction to satisfaction. Uh, Let me unpack that. He was home with his brother and his dad. He wasn't satisfied. He didn't like the life living in the context of his dad, his father, living in his father's house. And so he asked his dad to split the inheritance so he could get his inheritance, then his dad did, and he left. And when he left with all this inheritance, all this money, he was very satisfied. And he partied and he had a wonderful time. It was a great time. You'd look at him and you'd go, that guy's having fun. And it was a wonderful time and then his money ran out and his friends ran off and he ended up dissatisfied again because the best thing he could have was feeding pigs and the pay was essentially all you could eat. Not the pigs, the feed. And he was dissatisfied again. What a great gift. At that moment. To thirst. To be dissatisfied. To say this isn't good. You see if he had been satisfied all that that time. He would have never gone back to his father. But at that moment, he was dissatisfied with his life and he began to think about his father and he said, you know, the least in my father's household, the servant, the least in my father's household are much better off than me, so now I'm going to go back and you remember his father received him. You see, that's what it means to thirst. It means to be dissatisfied with where you are without God. You see, the great tragedy of life is for anybody to be able to live satisfied without God. That's horrible. That's horrible because your attention will never, be, will never be gotten. You'll never begin to think, oh, I need God. you think everything's fine. And so it's a great gift to become dissatisfied with life apart from God. And that's a work of God, a work of the Spirit of God. If, if you're content without God, pray that he would take that contentment away. Pray that you would become dissatisfied with your life. Pray that you would thirst. Because unless you thirst, you won't really desire to have what Jesus really gives, which is the life that comes from God. And this thirsting can come in a lot of different ways. It can come on the basis of fear. You look out in the course of your future, and you begin to think, I can't do this. It seems as if I'm not strong enough, and... And you begin to realize, perhaps I was never meant to be strong enough on my own to handle what's to come. It may be that you face your own mortality and think, what will happen? How will I face that? It may be that it's like the author of Ecclesiastes, that you just look around at life, as he did, and said, okay, it must be, satisfaction must be in pleasure. So he, being the rich king that he was, went out and bought all the pleasure he could for as long as he could and he found he got boring after a while and they said it must be an education so he, he learned as much as he possibly could and then he tried to apply it and realized even with the education he had that that which was already crooked he couldn't make straight because there were just problems in humanity of injustice and pride and selfishness and hatred that no matter how much book learning he got couldn't solve those and then he said it must be in, in becoming a wise man and so he got all the wisdom that he could and then realized that fools die and wise people die and so wisdom didn't seem to get you any better off than just being a fool and so then he thought it must be in money and wealth and so he gathered all the wealth he possibly could but then he realized he would die and leave his money to a fool who would spend it and he said this just doesn't have any meaning life really logically speaking, unless there's more than just that. And what brought meaning was God. And so if someone came to Ezekiel and said, Ezekiel, how do you get back? How do you you get to God? Ezekiel said, well, well, here's what I want to lay out for you. God is in his temple. And so to come to him means you've got to leave everything else that you've already trusted in, leave everything else behind, you see and you need to enter but, but once you enter into the presence of God you, need to, you, you can't come because you're unholy and so one that he's chosen must intercede for you must be your representative and you must bring a sacrifice because the wages of sin is death and, and, if, and if you don't bring a sacrifice then you'll have to be the one to die but God will accept a substitute so bring a substitute and, and the priest will take it to God and he will enter into his presence and, and you know what will happen? it may seem at first just like a trickle But it'll grow, and it'll deepen, and it'll widen the very life of God in you. But if somebody came to us, we'd just simply cut to the chase and say, go to Jesus. That's the very presence of God with us, Jesus. That's who He is. So come to Him, and and He will come, and you leave everything else behind all your own strength and all that you've ever trusted in and all of that, you leave that behind and you come to Him and He's the one then who will represent you before God. He's the one who will be your substitute in sacrifice and, and He's the one then from whom life will come. He says, if you thirst, Come. Because you see, in this dissatisfaction, we realize that life doesn't satisfy. It's more than just a dissatisfaction. After a while, we realize this is, this is really rebellion against God. It's sin against Him because, because I should be relying upon Him, and, and I wasn't. It's just in my own pride, in my own selfishness. That's the reason for the sacrifice. That's why I need someone to represent me. I've dishonored God. And Jesus says, that's why I came, that you might have life. Now, it's interesting if we can just fast forward quickly to Revelation chapter 22. Notice another vision. Ezekiel doesn't see this, but the Apostle John does. Notice. This is the end of the end, actually, I suppose, the beginning of the beginning. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Interesting. Same thing. Brightest crystal flowing from the same place. From the throne of God and of of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Now, not bad city planning. But you see, it's not about that. It's about a picture. It's about the meaning of a picture. So you can have rivers going all over the place and it's not just bad drainage. The point is, in the midst of the city, From the throne of God is this river, just like Ezekiel saw, now glory. Now notice, on either side of the river, the tree of life. Now, tree of life is singular, isn't it? But it pops up on both sides of the river. And so you get this sense there must be this orchard of the tree of life. Because it's on both sides. It's all connected to life, but it's springing up on both sides. Just like Ezekiel saw. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, just like Ezekiel, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's peace there. And so Jesus is saying, play connect the dots with me. Realize that what Ezekiel was saying is what I'm saying. What Ezekiel saw is who I am and what I bring. And that is where you'll be in all eternity. If you've never thirsted, pray that God will cause you to dry up. That you thirst with a thirst that can't be quenched other than leaving everything else behind and going to Jesus because that's where life is. How do you pray for people who don't know the Lord? I pray... They thirst. That God will bring a thirst upon them for Christ. That He will so work in them that they'll be dissatisfied with their own life and they'll see that there's only satisfaction, there's only life in Christ, and He will take them to Him. And if you believe in Jesus, of course, you know what this means. You know you've thirsted. You know the lack of satisfaction that everything else gives. In fact, even as believers, we understand that our life is one where God is constantly weaning us from things which satisfy us, which aren't from Him. He's constantly doing that in us. And we find ourselves waking up. We find ourselves becoming dissatisfied with that which used to satisfy us. And we wonder why it's those times you turn to Him and say, fill me, I'm leaving this behind. Now fill me, Lord Jesus. very quickly verse 38 in John chapter 7 Jesus goes on he says whoever believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water now Jesus is saying listen if you trust in me there's a sense in which these same rivers of life flow out of you notice then what he said in verse 39 Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not let glorified. How can that be? Well, that's next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I pray for me, for all of us. If there are places in our lives where we're satisfied but that satisfaction comes from something, something other than you or your ways, I pray, that you would cause a great dissatisfaction in us and that we would have that realization that only you satisfy, that we would come again to Christ and that our life would come from him. And Father, for those who are content with life apart from you, I pray, that you would be gracious to cause them to thirst, that there would be no satisfaction in life for any of us apart from you. Fill us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction as you do. I remind you that there will be elders available to pray uh, in the office area afterwards, so please take advantage. Of that, the response to the benediction is this, Christ gives me life. Now, when you say Christ gives me life, it means that you've thirsted, that you've found no life apart from him, so you've thirsted and you've gone to him and now you realize that that trickle actually trickled to you. So Christ is my life, and then the last word, of course, would be hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to Him, who is able to keep you from falling, to present you blameless before His glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, whom be glory, dominion, majesty, power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ gives me life. Hallelujah.